Thank you, Brother Al, and good morning. Nice to see you up bright and early, eager to study and learn from the life of Peter. I find him a fascinating character. Just amazing as to how the Lord is leading in his life. And of course, my hope and prayer is that we can somehow get a glimpse of that because that's how God deals with each of us. The loving, amazing God that we have. I'm going to look at Peter in a little different way this morning. Uh, we've learned already that he's a, a most remarkable Bible character. His father is John, brother Andrew. He's married. Don't know if he had any children or not. They're in the fishing business and rather a profitable business for them. Andrew, his brother, has heard John preach, has uh, been introduced to Jesus as the Messiah. And the first thing Andrew wants to do is invite his brother. Come, we have found the Messiah. And Peter begins that memorable walk with the Lord Jesus. He's so much like me. So much like you. Desires to follow Christ faithfully, but there are times when our choices and our actions or our words have not been good. Less than our best for our Savior. When that happens, of course, there is remorse. And we discover that God is at work, even when we make mistakes, endeavoring to bring us back to him. That's the amazing God that we have. And as Carl has been sharing with us night by night, the, the amazing grace of God in behalf of each one of us. Peter has met the master. He is... Um, called to leave his fishing business and become a fisher of men. He uh, comes to the point where up in Caesarea Philippi, remember, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then he comes to the low, I don't even know him, and begins to curse. What a swing in that life of Peter. We come to the point where he denies Christ. He questions the truth, and it's downhill. And when you begin to question truth, beloved, the devil knows that. And you've set yourself up to be a target, because the devil hates truth. He fights the truth. The great controversy is real. Is real. Jesus said, I am the truth. So if you want to know truth, look at Jesus. Study his life. Remember when Peter questioned the truth. That Jesus said he's going to go to Jerusalem, you know, and be crucified on the cross. Peter questioned that. Took Jesus aside and rebuked him. And then Jesus takes Peter aside and rebukes him. Get thee behind me, Satan. And it all began questioning truth. Now, in truth is no longer truth as far as a top priority in our lives. The next step is compromise. 
We begin to compromise the truth. And that means that we have a, a diminished view of Jesus when we compromise the truth. An interesting verse of scripture in Romans chapter 1. Let me read it to you. Romans chapter 1. We're studying Romans in our um, Sabbath school lesson this quarter. Amazing study. But notice Romans chapter 1 and verse uh, verse 1. It says that they're without excuse, but because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile with their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Because they professing to be wise, they became fools. What does the text say? What does the text matter? We think that we're smarter than Jesus. That's first century stuff. Hey, 21 centuries later, we know more. That's the way it happened then. It's not the same now, you see. Questioning, questioning truth. And then Jesus takes Peter and James and John, goes up to the Mount Transfiguration where he is glorified. And Peter wants to put him on the same level with Moses and Elijah. He ignores the truth. Jesus had told him before the night's over, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter ignores that, says, no, Lord, no. And he places himself in the danger zone to forget the truth. Peter's a strong man. He had to be for to be in the fishing business. But when he sees Jesus led away, and he has denied him, here is this strong man that weeps, cries bitterly. That look of Jesus broke his heart. Now, what can a person do when they've stumbled? Is there any hope for an individual when they stumble? We know that by God's grace, beloved, there is. We may stumble, we may mess it up, we may blow it away. But God is there working with us. It shows us what God is doing to, to bring us back. There are four ways that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, and you have your sheet with you, that little outline. And again, I'm indebted to my colleague in ministry, uh, Don Hubbard, for sharing that uh, with me. Notice you want to write them in there as we begin. Uh, Jesus as Peter's shepherd. Jesus as Peter's shepherd. Number two, Jesus as Peter's intercessor. Jesus as Peter's intercessor. Number three, Jesus as Peter's Lord. Peter's Lord. And then Jesus as Peter's Savior. Jesus is the shepherd, the intercessor, the Lord, and the Savior. So we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 26. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 26. 
a passage that we've already read several times, but just as a, a review and to, to kind of uh, set the pace for us. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Matthew 26, 31. Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd. This is a prophecy that Jesus is quoting here from Zechariah. It is around Zechariah 13. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus, of course, is the shepherd. He warns Peter as a shepherd. He is warning Peter. I don't know if the disciples understood this passage of Scripture as we do today. When Jesus quoted that, what did that mean? I don't know if their minds were able to to get around that. That the shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will be scattered. But notice verse 32, Jesus gives them the assurance. But after I have been raised, I will go before you in Galilee. There is hope. There's assurance once again. And then verse 33. And Peter said unto him, even if all, even if all are made to stumble, that is the other disciples. Lord, you can count on it. I will never be made to stumble. What confidence. (laughs) What confidence. I will never be made to stumble. And of course, when he says the others may do it. Doesn't speak well of them. And of course, Peter has an exalted view of his own steadfastness without realizing how weak he is. How weak he is. How dependent he was on the grace of God. And then the other disciples, of course, Jesus says, no, I'm going to tell you that this night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, no way, Lord, I'll die for you. And they all said the same thing. Talk is cheap. Easy to say that we're followers of Christ. But let me ask you this morning, are you a follower of Christ? Are you really a follower of Christ? How's your faith? Lord, I won't do that. There's no way you can get me to stumble. There's no way, Lord, I'm going to deny you. No way. Is your faith really that strong? The shepherd's ministry is a wonderful ministry. When we lived up in Walla Walla, we'd go up into the blues, Daryl. Sometimes you see the shepherd, the flocks of sheep there being moved from one place to another. It's just a beautiful thing. Jesus told a story, I remember one time, of the shepherd losing his sheep. And it wasn't a dozen sheep that he lost, there were 50. It was just one. And he treks over the countryside searching for that one lost sheep. You, me. Amazing. He's searching for you, he's the shepherd. He's looking out for you. He wants to care for you. He knows you're lost. He knows you can. There's no way you can get back without him. 
So he's going to go looking for you until he finds you. Jesus' concern for Peter is the same as a shepherd for his sheep. And so Jesus warns Peter, and Peter doesn't take that warning very seriously. And that, beloved, is a clue to my heart and I trust to yours. That when the Spirit of God speaks to us in that still, small voice, take it seriously. Listen to him. When the scripture says one thing, don't try to make it read something else. Because so often we read it and yet we go against that warning. In Luke chapter 22, brings us to our, our second point. Luke chapter 22, that Jesus now is the intercessor. Luke 22 and verse 31. Another amazing insight into Jesus' grace and love and concern for Peter. Luke chapter 22, notice verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. That bring to mind Job. Remember, Satan wanted to beat up on Job, too. Satan has asked for you, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Isn't that amazing? It just... uh, I have prayed for you. Satan would love to blow you away. He would just love to smash you down. He would love to make nothing of you. But Peter, I have prayed for you. And I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus is the intercessor. Jesus knows that Peter is going to be sifted. And he prays that his faith will not falter. He's not going to be destroyed. But don't let that faith falter. Now, I've never been to the Middle East to see how they thrash their wheat and their so forth. But, but they, you know, throw it up in the air, tumble it up in the air, and the, the wind, the breeze will blow that chaff away, and the wheat will fall down to the ground. But that's not what Satan is hoping for. Satan is hoping that when the trials and the difficulties and all the vicissitudes of life that we go through, that that will cause us to stumble and fall and give up. So he's hoping that the wheat will be blown away, and the chaff will be made, remain. But Jesus allows us to go through that sifting. Because he has another plan for our life. He wants that chaff to be blown away and for the wheat to remain. And it's interesting. Jesus doesn't permit 
or keep Peter from going into this process. Jesus doesn't keep us from experiencing difficulties and hurts and traumas in life. He permits them. But as we're going through them all, he says, I'm praying for you. Keep that in mind. I'm praying for you. No matter what circumstance you're going through, I am praying for you. That the chaff may be blown away. The wheat will remain. And it will be polished into that divine similitude of Jesus Christ. And we can reflect him to the world. So he allows that to happen. Paul mentions in Hebrews chapter 7, he says, He ever liveth to make intercession for us. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul mentions also, He, Jesus, is our intercessor. Jesus is our intercessor. So Jesus doesn't pray that Peter will be spared or he will be uh, relieved of going through this sifting process. He says, I'm praying for you as you go through it. Keeping in mind, there's no temptation, there's no difficulty that's going to come to you that I'll not see you through it and provide a way of escape. So God will allow us to be tested. Not that he removes Peter from the sifting process, but in the midst of it, he's praying for us that our faith will not fail. Jesus is praying for Peter. He prays for each one of us. And the bottom line is, Jesus is more power than, powerful than Satan in that sifting process. More powerful than Satan. He went to the cross confident that Peter would come back to him. And that tells us the story of the amazing grace of the powerful God. Aren't you grateful for an intercessor like that? No matter what you go through, beloved, he's praying. He's praying for you. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, not only is Christ our intercessor, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is praying for you. In other words, we do not, he doesn't leave us to rely on our own resources when these experiences happen to us. He's praying for us. He's there to support us. And this to me is remarkable. That Jesus knows that Peter is going to deny him. He's going to stumble. In fact, he's going to stumble badly. He's going to take a tremendous tumble. That Jesus is confident of Peter. So much so that he's, he's praying for him. He's not angry with Peter. Not angry with him at all. He gives him assurance of a future. Because as we read a moment ago, when you come back, strengthen your brother, strengthen your brother. And so we see how Jesus is working and influencing Peter. He's a shepherd. He warns him. He's his intercessor. He's praying for him. And now he becomes also his Lord. He's going to confront him, confront him. Listen carefully. 
Those who love others, who have stumbled. Those who love others who have stumbled should love them enough to confront them. Most of us, and I know I don't like confrontation. I'll do almost anything to to keep from confronting. I don't like confrontation. They've arrested Jesus. They've taken him away to the high priest to be tried. Peter's gone to the courtyard. And he wants to observe what's going to happen. Uh, We're in Luke chapter 22. Notice verse 54. Luke chapter 22 and uh, verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him to the high priest's house. Peter followed at a distance. Now they are kindling themselves around the fire in the courtyard. Peter sat with them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat there, looked intently at him and said, This man is also with him. Now there are two ways, two ways that Jesus confronts Peter. In verse 34 was the spoken word. Peter, I told you that you're going to deny me. I told you that. And now to notice verse 61. Luke chapter 22 and verse 61. They came. They confronted Peter. He denies them. But in verse 61, after they, he is, <laughs> I don't know this guy. I don't know what you're talking about. But notice what it says. Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Jesus has confronted Peter in the word. I told you, Peter, it's going to happen. Now he confronts Peter with not a word, a look. Just a look. First, Peter has failed. And Jesus has filled his heart with the truth. Peter, you're going to deny me. One of the reasons, and I suppose many of us here this morning are grandparents, one of the reasons why we raise our children and um, help to influence our grandchildren is to encourage them in the study of the Word of God. Put truth in their hearts in order that their hearts and minds can be filled with truth. They may not like it. They may rebel against it. But the Word of God can be hidden in their hearts so that when they come to a crisis or a trauma in their life, God now has an opportunity to bring back that truth to them and to help them in these crisis times and crisis experience. As grandparents, yeah, our children are, you know, grown, but we now have the grandchildren to influence. Three weeks ago, I had the distant, wonderful privilege of baptizing our youngest granddaughter, Kimmy. She's 12 years old. 
And she'd gone through a, a Bible study class. And she's now ready for her, her baptism. Uh, she's very special to me. She's born on my birthday. We share birthdays. So there's a little special bond there, although we love them. We love them all. Um, and so I was talking to her the week before her baptism, just refreshing and going over some things. And I said to her, Kimmy, um, are there any individuals that have been especially influential in your life or who has helped you to make this decision to give your heart to Jesus and accept him as your Lord and Savior? She thought five seconds. My mom and you, Papa. I was shocked. I was shocked. Me. Grandparent. And then I thought, what if I hadn't been that influence? What if I hadn't been that influence to her? The influence. I don't remember ever preaching to Kimmy. We have fun together. We play together. We play games together. Honestly. But it's been rubbing off into her these 12 years. Papa, you have influenced me. Don't give up as grandparents the influence you can be to those children. Fill their hearts with truth and every opportunity. Such an insignificant thing as a rooster crowing. Jesus said, when the rooster crows, Peter, you'll have advised me three times. As I mentioned yesterday, Peter, when he saw that rooster strutting around the barnyard, might like to wring his neck off. But the rooster crows. One of the reasons God fills our hearts with truth, one of the reasons that we need to be in the truth, even though we may rebel against it and fight it at times, is that when the crisis moments come in life, then that truth is in our hearts to stabilize us and to see us through the crisis. The second way that Jesus confronts Peter is the way he looked at Peter. Verse 61 there says, Jesus looked at Peter. He's reaching out to Peter. When Jesus came to trial, Peter wasn't looking for him. Jesus was looking for Peter. Peter's denied. He, he doesn't want to look at Jesus. That's the last place he wants to look. Do you ever get caught in the cookie jar? You don't want mom to see you. No. He doesn't want, he knows he's guilty. He doesn't want Jesus to see him. But Jesus is looking at him. He knows Peter's there. He knows the crisis that's going on in Peter's life. He knows what he's experiencing because he's denied him. And the next step, the next step that an individual who has stumbled takes is so very important and so absolutely necessary to the process of restoration. Jesus looked at Peter. Peter looked at Jesus. 
their eyes lock. Peter remembered. And I think that was the thing that broke Peter's heart. His heart was broken. He went out and wept bitterly and repented of what he had done. Jesus knew that. Peter knew that Jesus knew his heart. He walked with him for three years. But when Jesus looked at him, he had never seen that look before. Never seen it before, that look of Jesus. That look went through Peter like a knife. But the look of Jesus didn't convey the idea, you coward, you coward. I told you what you were going to do. That look bore a message. And it wasn't a message that you're a coward. It wasn't a message, Peter, I told you so. Why weren't you listening? It was a message, Peter. I love you more. There is more love in my heart for you than there is sorrow in your heart for what you have just done. And that, to me, is amazing. That's Jesus. There's more love, Peter, in my heart for you. Even though you've denied me. Then there is sorrow in your heart for what you have just done. As Carl shared with us night by night, there's more grace in the heart of Jesus for Peter. At that moment, then there is sorrow in Peter's heart for what he has done. So I say to you this morning, those who stumble must have those who love them enough to confront them in order that they might come back to Jesus. The look of Jesus in Peter's life. Jesus is his shepherd, and so he warns him. Jesus is his intercessor. He's prayed for him. Jesus is his Lord, and so he confronts him. And Jesus now is his shepherd, his savior, and he restores him. Luke chapter 22 Verse 61 reminds us again of that look of Jesus, that look that broke Peter's heart, and he wept bitterly. He is conscience-stricken when he saw the Lord's look. He's standing around that fire trying to warm himself. Maybe it's the first time in a long time that this strong fisherman shed some tears. But the record is that he went out and wept bitterly for what he had done. He remembers what Jesus has said. The shepherd will be smitten. The sheep will be scattered. It's not so much that 
the fate of Peter needs to be awakened as the fact that the conscience of others of what Peter has done and his ministry to come needs to be restored. So Jesus is very gentle with Peter. He's very tender with Jesus, with Peter. But he's also very firm because he is now Peter's savior. He's gone to the cross. He's given his life. He's died on that cross for Peter. He's been raised in the resurrection. And that resurrection has proved that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's paid for the sins of the whole world. Peter can now sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. That's going to take place back at Galilee. Jesus now is at work to restore Peter. In fact, I'm going to share a few thoughts with you with guarding restoration because without it, it, without these steps, restoration just really doesn't take place. And the first one is requires the way back here is repentance. Repentance. You notice it in your outline there. And repentance means simply a change of mind. Repentance means a change of mind with the resultant correspondent change of my behavior. I not only have changed my thinking about the issue, but it may be necessary for me to change my direction as well. I change my mind, I've changed my direction. And repentance can bring us to tears, as it did with Peter. In order for us to experience and understand repentance, then we have to agree with God about God's estimation of our behavior. And it begins with repentance. A change of attitude a change of the way I look at myself. Whenever I become aware that I'm the one who has stumbled and stumbled badly, my thinking tends to go in two directions, both of which are wrong. One direction is that I want to blame others for what I have done or for what I have said. I want to blame others for my mistakes, my bad choices. Some individuals blame God. Some individuals blame church. A bunch of hypocrites, you know. Want nothing to do with them. Some blame their family. Some blame their friends. Some blame their business. I will not accept responsibility for my decisions. I want to blame someone else for them. And this is a a serious mistake for us to make, beloved, because there can be no restoration, no restoration at all, until I take full responsibility for what I have said or what I have done. And I can't blame anyone. I have to take that responsibility. The other avenue or the other approach I may take 
is just as bad. And that is that my stumbling is so bad. I have messed up so much that there is no way, even though God has forgiven me, I've asked him to forgive me, but there is no way that he will accept me back and allow me to work for him once again because my sin was so grievous to him. Oh, God's forgiven me. He's, he's wiped the record clean. But I have made such a mess of it that there's no way that he will have me back. Keep in mind, repentance is simply that we agree with God about his estimation of my behavior. He calls it sin. I call it sin. No two ways about it. Then there has to be that change in behavior. I have to change my lifestyle or whatever it is. Asking God to cleanse me and forgive me. And it begins with repentance. Which means I take full responsibility. I don't blame anyone else. And then there's reconciliation. Reconciliation. And reconciliation simply means, you know, bringing back together those that have been at odds with each other. Go with me to Mark, the 16th chapter, Mark, chapter 16, an interesting passage of here as well. Mark, chapter 16. And you remember it. Uh, this whole chapter tells us about the resurrection of Jesus and so forth. The women have brought the spices and ointments to anoint his body and they come to the temple, uh, come to the tomb. And um, the angels tell them that uh, they're not there. Remember, the last picture we have of Peter is he's what? He's weeping. His, his heart is broken. This happened on Friday. He just simply drops out of the picture. We don't know where he went. What happened? He can't go to Jesus. Jesus is in the tomb. He's dead. He's gone. Don't know what happened to Peter. But verses 5 and 6, notice them. Luke 16, verses 5 and 6. Entering the tomb, they saw a man clothed, long white robe, sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He's risen. He's not here. Look, look for yourself. Look at the place where they laid him. But notice verse 7. Amazing. But go and tell his disciples and who? Peter. Go and tell the disciples and Peter by name that he's going before you into Galilee. God reaching out to Peter. Here's a special delivery FedEx letter to Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Make sure Peter gets the word. And there's a reconciliation 
meeting. Uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And verse 31. The Lord has risen. Luke 24 and verse 31. The Lord is risen. He's appeared to Peter. And Paul reminds us. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Write that text down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 4 and 5. Paul says that the Lord appeared to Cephas before the twelve. Interesting. Interesting thought. Somewhere, somewhere, at some point, Jesus and Peter have a private meeting. Amazes me. Sunday morning, Jesus meets with Peter somewhere. Nothing's recorded about it. We can imagine what took place. Desire of Ages, a tremendous source. I'm reading it through once again. I think this is about the fourth or fifth time that I've, I've read it through. Let me read to you page um, 815. Desire of Ages. Jesus walked alone with Peter. For there was something which he wished to communicate to him and to him only. They have this private conversation. Before his death, Jesus has said, whether I go, you can't follow me. And Peter, of course, asked the Lord, why, why can't I go? I'll lay, my, I'll lay down my life for you. Peter had failed when the test came. But again, he was to prove and to have an opportunity to prove his love for Christ. That he might be strengthened for the final test of his faith, the Savior opened to him his future. Glorious. Peter and Jesus alone talking about this. Jesus said, when you were young, you girded yourself, you walked, whether you wanted to go. But now that you're old, you'll stretch forth your hands and another will gird you and carry you whether you would not want to go. And he spake this signifying by what death he should glorify God. Peter would remain faithful unto death. Stumbled badly, made a mess out of things. But Jesus reconciles him, accepts his repentance, and he's come back. Desire of Ages, page 793. 793. The angel has said, Tell Peter, tell the disciples, but be sure Peter gets the message, said the angel. Since the death of Christ, Peter has been bowed down with remorse. His shameful denial of the Lord and the Savior looks at 
that love and anguish though it was ever before Peter it never left his mind that look that pierced his heart of Jesus of all the disciples he has suffered most bitterly to him the assurance given that his repentance is accepted and his sin is forgiven and he is mentioned by name he's mentioned by name what a God what a God. To be to me it's it's just remarkable the insight of our Lord Jesus Christ in caring for Simon Peter. That's why I love the gospel, the story of Peter. Because it gives me the assurance and the hope that this is how Jesus cares for me. That's what he's going to do to see that I make it. Doesn't give up. Doesn't condemn. He confronts. But he doesn't condemn. You coward. I told you. No, that doesn't even cross his mind. They have a private meeting Sunday morning. And Peter is restored. The third one there is restoration. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. You know, ultimately, Peter, when he writes his uh, epistles, and as I mentioned before, that first epistle, read them. The first epistle tells us how to suffer for Jesus. The second one tells us how to be loyal for Peter, for Jesus. But in that first epistle, he says, cast all your burdens all your cares upon Jesus because he cares for you. Peter knew that by experience. He wasn't mouthing words. He was sharing his experience. He cares for me. He carried me through when I really blew it badly. He'll do the same for you. He'll do the same for you. Whenever we've made bad choices, beloved, don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on others. Don't give up on Jesus. But allow the Spirit of God to work in your heart, knowing that you have a shepherd who tenderly cares for you. You have an intercessor Who's praying for you? You have a Lord who's going to walk you through, even though it may be difficult, walk you through the circumstance. And then you have a Savior who gave his life for you to redeem you from sin. If you know someone who has stumbled and stumbled badly, I hope you can take these insights and share them and help them to see the amazing God that we have. A God of amazing love. That's why he's asked us. That's why he's invited us to lift him up. Because as we lift up Jesus... 
hearts are drawn to him. Father in heaven, we can't begin to fathom your amazing love or grace. We talk about it, we talk around it, we try to talk through it. But Lord, all we have to do is give up and say, hey, I'm going to accept it. It's a free gift. Thank you for your love. Thank you for being our, our shepherd. The tender care that you've had for us. For praying for us as our intercessor. That amazes us, Lord. And to be our Lord. When we need to get out of line, you bring us back. And to be our Savior. Thank you for all your graciousness and tender loving care. May it truly be our heart's desire, Lord, to serve you the rest of our days in this life. And then have that wonderful privilege because of your amazing saving grace to serve you in eternity. Is our prayer in our wonderful Savior's holy name. Amen.